how we like to quantify things in life, right? We like to know exact numbers or quantities of things. Well, maybe not all of you, but I kind of do. I'm kind of uh, a little uh, OCD in that way. Uh, and sometimes there's an extreme, nece- uh, extreme necessity for us to know exact numbers and quantities. Like, I want engineers to work with exact numbers and quantities so that our planes fly, that our bridges don't fall, that our cars operate properly. I, I want engineers to be precise. I want, them, I want them to know the exact numbers, the exact quantities. We need certain things to be exact. But there are other things that we don't need to be so exact with, and yet we often worry more about those things, <laughs> the things that being exact about doesn't really matter. I know that when I was a kid, I took it upon myself to be the fairness police, uh, the quantity um, and quality police, uh, making sure that no one else got more of something than the other, worrying about what others got that I didn't get. And I'm sure the lives of my families and friends, particularly my siblings, uh, was uh, not much fun uh, when I was doing that. And as I think about it, you know, we want to know that things are equal and exact. We want to know the exact number of M&Ms that our sister got so that we make sure we get the same. Not that I remember anything about that. In my, no. Um, this morning, I bring that up because Jesus gets a question kind of like that. He gets a question from someone in the crowd about quantities. They want to know the numbers. They want to understand the odds. In a sense, they're worried about what others might or might not get. And while those kind of questions can come from a place of concern and compassion, Jesus decides that this person and us need to have a different focus for this particular question. The question that is asked is, will the saved be few? And Jesus says, not will the saved be few, but will the saved be you? Let's read Luke 13, 22 through 35. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some who are first 
who will be last. At that very hour, Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word, Jesus, who dwelt among us, has given us your very word. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you're a guest today, we're in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we've titled this series, Certainty in Christ. And just to help you understand where, where we're at, Luke wrote his gospel, the good news of Jesus, as someone who, like us, was not an eyewitness to Jesus. He was a Greek Christian, meaning he was a Gentile, someone who came to faith later in life. He didn't necessarily grow up in the Jewish culture and customs. He didn't grow up as a Christian, or maybe he did, but he's a second-generation Christian. And he went to explore whether what he had been told and believed was true about Jesus. And two weeks ago, we were in Luke 13, 10 through 21, where Jesus heals a woman with a disabling spirit on the Sabbath. And we asked the question from the text, do we know the release and abundance of the Sabbath kingdom? We saw that because Jesus is the king of the kingdom and Lord of the Sabbath, we are given release and abundance. We saw that Jesus gives release from those things that bind us, and his kingdom is one of abundance, not scarcity. We often think and live as if the kingdom of God is of scarcity, but Instead, Jesus remind us, reminds us it is of abundance. And this morning, we continue with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the events of the final week of his life, what we call Holy Week, this week that we remember and will end with the celebration of the resurrection. And on this Palm Sunday, we're not in the, quote, typical texts for today. But we're in a text that points to the events that are about to happen and our need to understand these things. So Luke once again reminds us for the first time since the end of chapter 9 that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, right? We read he went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. His face is set, as Luke said earlier, to Jerusalem, everything that he has done and is doing and will do in the course of these chapters in Luke is about what Jesus has come to do, which is to die on the cross and rise from the dead. And so as we 
enter these chapters, we've, we've said that we need to interpret them in, the, in what is going to happen in this holy week, in this week of Jesus' passion. And he makes this, as he makes this final leg of his journey, he wants those that are with him and us to understand what is about to take place and our place in this story. And he uses the question of someone in the crowd to prepare us. The question is not necessarily a bad one because Jesus' teaching has seemed to indicate that this might be true. Because the general Jewish belief at the time was that nearly all Israel would be saved in the time to come, except for those really, really evil, evil people, like the Gentiles, kind of sounds familiar to today's understanding of who will be saved. And while we, while it may have been a good question to ask, Jesus has a different way of seeing things. Instead of, will the saved be few, Jesus flips the question on the crowd and on, and on us. Will the saved be you? It's the question that confronts us today in our text. Will the saved be you? This is the question of Palm Sunday. Right? This is what we gather this day and the beginning of Holy Week to ask ourselves and to remind ourselves, will the saved be you? Because what were the crowds shouting on that first Palm Sunday? Hosanna! Save us now! They were calling out for salvation. They wanted to be saved. We desire to be saved. But we must answer Jesus' question. Will the saved be you? Jesus warns us that the answer might not be what we think it is. And so our main point this morning is that Jesus comes in the name of the Lord with warning and lament. Jesus comes with warning and lament. First, we'll look at his warnings. And his warnings are given to us in what I'm saying are three different doors. You know, like the old game show behind door number one, door number two, door number three, you know. Um, that's what Jesus is giving us here, three doors. He's giving us the narrow door, the locked door, and what I'm calling the revolving door. All right, so we'll look at the warnings that he gives us through these doors, but he also will also look at his lament. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord with warning and lament. First, his warnings, verses 22 through 30. He begins by answering this question by saying, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Verse 24, as I mentioned previously, the general Jewish belief that was, was that nearly all of Israel would be saved in the time to come. But Jesus urges the questioner and us to make sure that we are in whatever that number is, whatever that few or many or whatever that number is, Jesus is asking us to make sure that we are in that number, however large or small it proves to be. 
This is of first importance, Jesus says. It's first, of first importance than doing some arithmetic or some kind of cost-benefit analysis or any of those types of things. The first and foremost of importance is, will you be among that number? And the command to strive, sometimes I think we maybe misunderstand this, does not mean moral effort is necessary to enter into the kingdom, nor does it mean entrance is gained by exercising human responsibility. Rather, in the context that we see throughout, particularly this section, what we've just looked at in the last several weeks of, what, of Jesus' teaching, the struggle, the, the striving that Jesus is talking about here is repentance. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The struggle through which we enter the narrow door is repentance. It's not our work. It's not our responsibility. The work is God's in the human heart. The struggle is produced when the word of God, such as the teaching of Jesus here, calls us to repent and trust in Christ. Right? This is the struggle. When God's word says, repent and trust in Jesus, the struggle is, will we respond? <laughs> will we respond by going through the narrow door? Will we respond with repentance? Because our sinful human nature, our sinful human heart, wages war against God's word. And Jesus understands that, and that's why he says it's, it's a striving, it's a struggling the struggle is resolved as the old Adam, as Paul put it, is put to death and the person of faith is raised to new life in Christ by the power of the gospel. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. The struggle against sin, what I, what I desire not to do, I do. Yet praise be to God in Jesus Christ who gives me power. This is the struggle of sin in our lives. Jesus is saying that the, the striving, the struggling is repentance. Repenting, declaring our need for God. That is why it's so narrow. Because our human heart from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell into sin, it was about being like God. And it's narrow because there are so many of us who want to be like God. In whatever different way that we want to be like God, and it is repentance from our sin to enter the narrow door. Jesus says that's the striving, that's the struggling to enter through the narrow door of repentance. Do you have a heart that is willing to repent of your need for Jesus? He moves from this illustration of the narrow door to the locked door becoming a very exclusive club now. 
And Jesus compares here the spiritual blessing of entering a banquet, right? He says that the, the master, when he gets up, he rises to shut the door. It's this image of a banquet. People are seated and the master will then rise. Once everyone has been seated, the master would rise up and go and lock the door. It's this blessing of entering a banquet room where once the door is closed, entry is no longer allowed and the celebration can begin. You know, when I was uh, doing, when I was on sabbatical in Scotland and I was preaching for uh, one of the congregations there, there was something that happened that I was like, what in the heck is going on here? Like I had no concept of what was happening until I was actually studying this passage. And I was like, okay, this kind of makes some sense. Well, on Sunday morning, we'd arrive at the church and the elders would be standing at the door. So elders, you need to be standing at our door when everybody arrives here at church every Sunday morning, welcoming them. And as soon as the time for the service to start had come and everyone was in, they locked the door. I was like, what? (laughs) I was like, man, a lot of covenant community would never be able to come to church (laughs) if we locked the doors. I was was like, what is happening here? Now, I'm sure if somebody showed up late, they'd go unlock the door and let them in. But there's a sense here of everyone who's coming to the banquet has entered. Everyone who is here to celebrate together is here. And now we will lock the door so we can all celebrate together knowing that everyone is in and safe and able to worship and to enjoy this together. You see, Jesus is saying to us, come in through the narrow door. The door is open, come in. But when it's time, the door will be closed and the banquet will begin and the celebration will not end. You see, it's Jesus who controls in this brief explanation, we're seeing that Jesus is the one who controls the destiny of humanity. He's the one who possesses the keys of God's kingdom and also of death and of Hades. And and our ultimate destiny is determined by whether Jesus will say at the door, I know you. Come on in. Welcome. Because what we see here is that the mere fact of being physically in Jesus' presence or being acquainted with him is not enough for entrance into God's kingdom. Right? It's not enough to be, to be just acquainted with Jesus it's any more than, it is to be, than membership and participation in church is enough. Right? One must repent and believe. Right? What, another way to put this is that God doesn't have any acquaintances. The father has only sons and daughters. The son has only brothers and sisters. God doesn't have any acquaintances. And so Jesus stands at the door and says, 
Welcome, brother. Welcome, sister. The father says, welcome, my daughter. Welcome, my son. And then Jesus says he locks the door. Finally, the warning that Jesus gives is about what I call a revolving door. Right, this revolving door that those who think they have access get to the door and find out, oh wait, I'm being sent right back out. Those who think they have access because they are those who consider themselves worthy of coming. Right, what has Jesus just said? He said, the door is narrow because it takes repentance. I stand at the door and will lock it. It's only those who know me and I know them through repentance and faith. Those who acknowledge that they aren't worthy of coming in to the banquet are the ones that are welcomed. Right, those who come to the door believing that they, have, that they should be there, not by their repentance, not by what Christ has done for them, but because they are the first. They are the, the best. Jesus says, nope, just head right back on out. Right, the surprise in Jesus' reply is not that access may be limited. Pretty much everybody believed it was going to be limited, whether it was going to be just Israel or just Israel plus a few Gentiles. However people wanted to describe it, they all believed that it would be limited. The surprise was not that it may be limited, but who gains entry? Right, this feast that Jesus is welcoming, who stand at the door welcoming his brothers and sisters, his, the daughters and sons of, of the king, of the father that he welcomes in, that is the surprise. Right, those who rejoice at the table of Jesus and the kingdom of God, yes, will include the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who anyone would expect to be there, the prophets, but also the Gentiles from the east and the west, the north and the south, as well as the outcasts of Israel, the poor, the disabled, the lame, and the blind. They have heard the word of repentance from John and Jesus, and they believe that in Jesus, God is bringing his salvation. Right? The irony of Jesus' words is that those guests who will participate in this great banquet are more likely to be the outcasts of Israel and Gentiles, not those who expect to have a seat at the table like the Pharisees. This is what Jesus means by the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And notice that Jesus isn't even excluding all of the first. 
or even welcoming all of the last. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Right? Just because you fall into certain categories still does not guarantee welcome in through the narrow or the locked or the revolving door. What is required, what is needed, is knowing our need for Jesus. Knowing our need for Him. Repenting and coming to Him. God's ultimate hospitality will be shown when Jesus is rejected on the cross in order to open the banquet door to all who believe. In Jerusalem, God's firstborn will be last. And God's exalted one will be humbled. But three days later, he will come from the grave. The great reversal will be completed. And so we have these warnings with great hope. Great hope that if we come to Jesus, we are welcomed into the banquet. Not only does he warn us, but he also laments. Verses 31 through 35. You know, Jesus isn't put off by the warning of the Pharisees, but instead continues his journey to Jerusalem, lamenting what is to become of the city and those who do not accept him. Do you see how these two work together? He warns us. He warns us that it is our need for him that welcomes us into the banquet. And he laments those who will not hear, heed his warning. He laments that there will be some who do not see their need to repent and come to him. He laments by saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. You see, Jesus is taking the Old Testament tradition, the Old Testament vision of God having his wings outstretched as a hen, mother hen or as an eagle above the nest, his wings outstretched over those who he is covering with his presence, protecting those under his wings. This is one of the great images in the Old Testament of God's love for his people and Jesus applies it to himself. He applies this protection that he would long, that he longs to offer his people if they were willing to come under his wings. Right? He says, if 
yet you were not willing. But Jesus is willing. Those, he's even willing for those who in their stubbornness would say they are not willing. And he travels to Jerusalem to die and stand in victory over the grave. It stands in great contrast to those who are not willing. And yet he is willing to gather all those under his wings under, what, under the protection that he is about to prepare for them through his death and resurrection. Jesus embraces the prophetic destiny of rejection, rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection that must take place in Jerusalem. The holy city, the place where God dwells and atonement must take place. Jerusalem is the place that Jesus will go to bring the truth to the words, save us now. Jesus' lament over Jerusalem embraces both the tragedy of Jerusalem's sin and the method God has chosen to deal with that sin. You know, many will get to the table, including some surprises. And when we come to that table, we all have a seat prepared for us. In today's context, the warning of this passage might be those who are first, those who have had exposure to Christ through the abundance of the church who still may not realize their need for repentance, who may turn out to be last. And those who are last would be those that we find so despicable, so unworthy, But Jesus says, this narrow door, this locked door, this revolving door is, for, is open to all who would come, knowing their need for him, coming through repentance and faith. Simply put, knowing Jesus is the issue. As John 10, 7 says, Jesus is the door for the sheep. He knows them and they know him. Will the saved be you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, even when we come to it with strong warnings and reminders of
of our sin. And yet, Lord, even in those strong warnings and reminders, Lord, you give us the path, the way of life. You yourself have given your life for ours. You yourself have shown us, told us, that through repentance we might have life. Through our knowing you, we might have life. And Lord, you lament. You lament of our stubbornness. You lament there are we those who will not come to you. Lord, we pray that as we enter this holy week, Lord God, we would find hope. We would find great resilience. Lord, we would find joy in the grace and the mercy you've given us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we would be those who repent, come to you, we might enter in. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by standing and singing Jesus Messiah. Redeemed